I'm here with a rare return guest. I don't think I've ever had a return guest on the show. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie uh, making a lot of noise out there. Uh, my choice for Republican nominee, even though I'm a Democrat, uh, he's somebody I would think very hard about voting for. Um, he's coming off in a marathon Morning Joe appearance this morning. I was exhausted just watching you, man. <laughs> well, thanks, Donnie. I was I was really encouraged by the amount of time I got uh, to talk with Joe and Mika and, and Willie and uh, Mike this morning. Talked about a lot of really important issues and it was a great, it was a great time. Why are you the only one that has figured out of this field that this thing goes through Trump, that you've got to punch Trump, that it's Trump or not Trump. Everything else is just noise. I don't understand it. I think part of it is, you know, none of them have had the experience that we had running in 2016. You know, in 2016, you'll remember, Donnie, we all thought there were two lanes to the nomination, right? There was the establishment lane where it was me and Bush and Kasich and, and Rubio, and then the conservative lane of Trump and Cruz and Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina. Everybody convinces it was going to work like the NCAA tournament, you know, where each going to advance yeah. in a bracket. <laughs> Brackets, right, right. Well, by the time we got done beating up each other, uh, Trump had the nomination. And so I do think that this is one of those moments where having run before is a real advantage because I've lived through these theories about, oh, well, you know, don't go right at him. When he collapses, you'll inherit his voters. He's not collapsing and he's not going away unless you defeat him. And and the, so to me, there's one lane to this nomination. Donald Trump's at the head of that lane and you got to go right through him if you want to win. Well, in doing that, we've got to obviously understand the, the Trump grip. You know, he's still, he's got 50%. This is after January 6th, after losing three or four straight elections, after two indictments, two more to come. So as a behaviorist, as a politician, as a smart Jersey guy, explain to me why he has this hold over the base and all, over the chunk of the party, regardless of what happens. What is it? Explain it to me. I think there's two different reasons. I think there's a, a group of these folks, maybe 20 to 25%, who just love Donald Trump and don't care. You know, this is the, I could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue crowd. Sure, sure. Right? That just are going to be with him no matter what. I think the rest of the people are people who have their jersey on all the time. And they think that to be against Trump means to be for Biden. And they don't want to be for Biden, so they'll be with Trump. What I think the campaign will illustrate to them is that there are better choices to take on Joe Biden. That if you really want to beat Joe Biden, don't run the guy who already lost to him once. Um, and so I think those people are persuadable, Donnie. I think 70, 75% of the primary electorate is willing to be persuaded against Donald Trump. Um, but you gotta make the, you gotta make the case. And that's what, that's why like today I'm in the, in the race for five weeks. So I didn't expect to have this thing won after five weeks or have Donald Trump to have it lost after five. I think this, this campaign really starts in earnest on August 23rd on the debate stage in Milwaukee um, when we can stand up there and make Donald Trump defend his record. What's, uh, how, are we, how are we looking for, for uh, qualifying for that debate? Are we feeling bullish about that? I think, I think we'll have a good announcement this week for you, Donnie. Okay, let's say you're well. Let's let's go to August twenty third. You're up on stage. Uh, your podium's yours. You give a little talk, and then you turn to Trump. What's the first thing you say to him? You know, my guess is it's going to be responding to something he says, um, because they'll probably go to him first, no matter what. Um, and I think that the key to these debates, Donnie, is to listen. Everybody thinks it's what you say that matters. You can't say something that is truly 
distinguishing, cutting or memorable. If you don't listen to what other people mm-hmm. are saying and then respond to that. So I think the best way for me to answer that one is I'll know the answer when I hear it. Um, yeah. when, when I hear what Trump has to say, uh, having to prep him for debates in 2016 for Hillary and 2020 for Biden, um, he knows I know how to do this. And that's why he don't want anything to do with this. It's interesting you say that the the most effective debate lines in history have been counterpunches. When I think about Lloyd Benston, you know, Jack Kennedy, Dan Quayle, or Reagan to Carter uh, saying, you know, I hope my age doesn't, you know, work too much against you. I mean, that's a really insightful point. It really is important. I think, and and remember, the people who come in with pre-programmed lines, they, they very rarely land. You know, what you need to have is to come in with an approach and then listen. Because I think that the key to debates are, you know, to be able to take advantage of what your adversaries give you rather than trying to jam something down the voter's throat. They like authenticity and there's nothing more authentic than spontaneity. And that's what I intend to give them on the stage August 23rd. Let's create a hypothetical Trump tipping point where he has this grip that we've talked about and Obviously, the drip, drip, drip that's happened does not affect it. We, we have, I actually saw an amazing stat that 24% of Republicans actually like him more as a result of the classified document. I don't even call it the classified document, the, the nuclear secrets case. So what's the breaking point? What, what is the, is it, is it indictment number five? Is it, uh, what, if you and I were handicapping, okay, right now, we're seeing tiny little cracks, but we're not seeing a, 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 a big fissure. What's going to cause that? There's no silver bullet, I don't think, Donnie. I think it's the accumulation of weight. I think if indictment three comes and indictment four comes, and look, those things will be problems for him. But in addition, you know, here's a guy who decided yesterday to on a, on, a, on a social media post to go after Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who's got 65% job approval out there because she's remaining neutral. Like, how about that? You know, now tick off the governor of Iowa and force her into somebody else's camp. He's a, he's a guy who, you know, today talked about in a tr- in true social post that he put up um, about the fact that, you know, Joe Biden is on cocaine. And that it's actually Joe Biden's cocaine. And, and that's what's happening there. And, you know, it, this is the kind of stuff where I think over time, uh, when it's brought out not by the media, Donnie, and not by Democrats, but by fellow Republicans who say, listen to this. Is this what you want on the stage against Joe Biden? Because if this is what you do, we're going to lose the presidency, we're going to lose the House, and we're not going to get the Senate back. And then you're going to want to see Joe Biden at 83 years old in a second term with those folks running the show, that should scare every Republican to death. And that's where I think it happens, Donnie. But that's going to take time because this guy's been in the front of every Republican primary voter's mind for eight years. You're not going to get rid of him in eight weeks. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the indictments. Can we do a kind of a power ranking handicapping? I know you, you mentioned on Joe this morning that the, the the first one you thought was a mistake. I agree with you also because uh, it kind of sheds a... Uh, a negative, I don't say a negative light, but a, a skeptical light on all the rest that come. But let's pick up with the documents case and go forward with a, a potential uh, Georgia case and a potential January 6th case. Take me through them as, as um, Chris Christie prosecutor. Look, 
I think the documents case is a very, very big problem for him for two reasons. One, he's basically admitted both the fact that he has possessed classified documents when he's no longer entitled to have them as a former president. And secondly, he's admitted to an obstruction. Now, basically, I know they, that I was supposed to give the stuff back in returning the grand jury subpoena, but I, I was too busy to go through all the boxes. And I had, you know, golf shirts and golf pants in the boxes. And so I didn't have time to go through and get that stuff out. I certainly don't want to give my golf shirts to the FBI. I mean, right. he's basically admitted the elements of both crimes, both the classified documents crime and the obstruction crime. So I think no matter what now, look, we haven't seen what Georgia may be willing to do or what the January 6th investigation from Jack Smith may uncover. But right now, he, you know, I, I agree with what Bill Barr said. If half of what's alleged in the indictment is proven beyond a reasonable doubt, he's toast. Um, and if he decides to take it to trial, he's going to go to jail because you mentioned you, about you, you, you mentioned about a plea. What would a plea look like? In like, I mean, nobody's talking about a plea. They're talking about he's guilty. He's going to jail or is he going to go to jail? What is a, what would a plea look like? Look, I think my guess is that some kind of plea would be uh, in return for no jail um, that he would have to agree to no longer be a candidate for public office. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my gut the way this thing plays out. I, I mean, is it, you know, I, I just, there's something that tells me just moving forward with Biden and Trump as the candidates that there are stories to be written. I'm not saying Biden's not going to run. And obviously right now, Trump is the clear front runner. But you just get the feeling as, as somebody that looks back in history that we've got some tidal waves coming that we haven't thought about yet. Well, that's exactly right. Look, eight years ago at this time, Trump was at 4%. Um, Jeb Bush was at 24, you know, Scott Walker was at 20, uh, in the Republican side. So we know there's going to be lots of changes. Barack Obama, as I said this morning, was 34 points behind Hillary Clinton at this point in 07. So we know there's going to be things. And I said to a group of Republicans this weekend, I said, you know, how good have all of you been at predicting winners so far? You know, we haven't been. Nobody ever is good at it. There's always surprises. And that's why I think you just, our campaign's view is to be persistent and patient. Persistent about the message that Republicans deserve the truth, as does the country, and Republicans deserve results on the issues they care about. And if they're not going to get either of those from Donald Trump, because they never get the truth from him, and they have, didn't get any results that they really wanted on some of the very big issues in the first term that he had, so we got to make that case and make it strongly. I think if we do, when you crack the facade, Donnie, I think this, this building is so rotted that it will collapse. Give a, a cynical, depressing point, and it's just your your website is because the truth matters. And it was a, it was an op-ed piece in the Times a few weeks ago that to many Republicans, they think non-truths are weapons. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit about the truth. It's like it's just. And so, if you don't have fucking truth to play with, what do you play with? Or, or is that you think that's a, that's a wrong hypothesis? Look, I think it is the wrong hypothesis. I think an overwhelming majority are there. Some Republican voters who only care what Donald Trump says whether it's the truth or not. Look, I saw a guy interviewed the other day who said that Donald Trump is still the president and that Joe Biden died 
and that it's an actor playing Joe Biden and that the military is actually reporting right now to Donald Trump. Well, look, for somebody like that, uh, you're not going to be able to persuade them of anything. And all you hope is that they're busy on election day and, and, and don't show up because you're not going to be able to persuade them. But I think that's a minority, a small minority of Republican voters. I think the truth does matter to them. Here's part of the problem. They don't know what the truth is. We're going through yep. years now of where truth appears negotiable, Donnie. That like, if you don't like the truth that you hear on one network, you turn to another one. If you don't like the truth that you read in one newspaper, you go to a newspaper that gives you what you want. And I think that what we haven't had a leader who has been willing, and Joe Biden's failed at this miserably as well, who's been willing to tell the truth to power. And, and, and they've been unwilling to do that. Joe Biden has kowtowed to his far left liberal wing, which frankly, he was never a part of. I've known Joe Biden for 40 years. I met him as an undergrad at the University of Delaware. He would walk around football tailgates, Donnie, and, you know, quaff beers off of people. Um, <laughs> that's how I remember Joe Biden. And he was not a part of the way left of the Democratic Party, but he's governed that way. And Donald Trump has just been a serial, um, you know, teller of lies. So I think that's also been part of the problem. We haven't had someone in the White House who has been willing to tell the truth as a majority of the American public need to hear it. And uh, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Let's talk about the Christie platform. Obviously, kind of what I'll call the emotional fist at the front is we can't have Trump and, and I'm a Trump beater. Underneath, the, let, let's go into some of the issues. You know, it, it, you talked about this this morning on the show. The economy in so many ways is positive. When you look at GDP growth, when you, when you look at unemployment, when you look at even even inflation is cooling, when you look at us stacked up against the rest of the world, when you look at manufacturing, there's a lot of positive stuff. Now, of course, the the kind of the, the dirty little secret in there is that even though Americans feel good about their own pocketbooks, they still think we're on the wrong track. Do you use the economy? Where do you go? Absolutely. Because look, the single most powerful economic issue, which we're learning again today, because we haven't had to deal with it for 40 years, is inflation. And, and while you're right, inflation isn't as high as it was last summer, it's still higher than what we had for the most of 40 years, which inflation was running at about 2%. And you know now we have it at, at, at you know between five and six. When inflation outstrips wage growth, and which it's doing, people feel it, Donnie. And they feel it when they go to the gas pump. They feel it when they go to the supermarket. They feel it when they go to the clothing store to get clothes for their kids. Look, this summer is going to be rough for people because if they want to go on vacation, they're putting gas in their car. They feel it. When they start buying the back to school clothes in August, they're going to feel it. And so it is still the most powerful economic weapon, um, where, where to make people feel badly. And it's what cost, let's face it, it's what cost Jimmy Carter the presidency in 1980. Uh, and it's going to cost Joe Biden the presidency, I think, you know, in very much the same way, unless we nominate Donald Trump, which will give people everything else to talk about and not the economy. But I think inflation is a big part of it. And the way to get at that, Donnie, we got to lower government spending. You know, we had all this COVID spending that needed to be done in the main to keep us afloat and to get us to the end of that crisis. But then we added trillions of dollars of spending onto the back end of it which was the far left's agenda. And even Larry Summers, as you'll remember, said, don't do this. It's going to cause wild inflation. Larry Summers mm -hmm. never known as a conservative economist, right? But here he is. He said it, and it turned out to be true. 
So that's the first thing on the economy is that you got to get spending under control. That means saying no to people. And you need someone who's had experience doing that because it's not pretty. You'll remember I had an $11 billion deficit on a $29 billion budget when I came into uh, the governorship of New Jersey. We didn't raise taxes. We cut 836 individual programs and we brought the budget into balance. But my approval ratings went down during that time, Donnie, because you're saying no to people. Yeah, I have a president who's willing to endure that. Let's let's move to abortion. You you've been a, a pro lifer all, all your life. You you believe that you were you were for Roe being overturned. You believe the state should be making the decision. Obviously, we've got a lot of craziness going on where in states where they're passing no exemptions. You know, somebody could be raped by their uncle, or a woman could be you know bleeding out on a table and still no abortion. I know you don't believe that. I was also really moved this morning. I never heard you tell that story about your sister. You know, because we talk about pro-life or pro-choice in abstract terms, but when it sometimes when you start to think about it and you put attach real human stories to it, your head tells a little bit. Well, that's it, and that's what I was trying to get to this morning because you know you, you talked about the length of the interview this morning. It's very rare that you can get that deeply into any issue, right? So we got fairly deep into the abortion issue this morning, and since I had the time, I figured I would tell that story. That for me, it's not it's not some theoretical issue. It is a sister who was born in 1971 to a teenage mom who, if it was two years later, I have to believe she would have gotten an abortion. And here's my sister now married five children and, you know, a, a huge part of our, our lives um, from the time my brother and I were quite young. And so these are complicated, difficult issues. And, you know, Mika was bringing up the issues this morning um, on the extreme of this issue from, from a pro-life perspective. But I also brought up the fact that I think it's awful that in my state, you can have a, you abortion up to nine months. Nobody I would think in America or very few people think that that's a good thing to do. And, and so what I wanna see happen in this country, Donnie, if it's possible, is for a consensus to form about what is the right rule here. And it's not gonna form by it being forced on anybody. That's why I think the idea of having all the states weigh in and let's see what the consensus is with 50 states. Yes, you're going to have some people who are going to pass, you know, no exceptions uh, abortion ban. And you're going to have some like New Jersey and New York who are doing nine month abortions. Those are the extremes. Where does the consensus form in the middle of there? Because then I think the federal government might be able to bring the country together around that consensus. But I think right now the country is still too divided to do that. And everybody in each one of their states is going to have a right to have a voice and a say. Let's see what happens. Because look what happened in Kansas. Red state, everybody thought that that would be a pro-life state. It turned out to be more of a pro-choice state on that issue. So I think also we, we get in trouble predicting who's going to go which way. Let's see what happens because the people are going to have their voice heard on this. You know, if you just look at the pure, taking the moral, the, the humane issues out of, you look at the politics of it, 60% of the country was against the overturn of Roe v. Wade. If I am running a Democratic campaign, I am going to scare the hell out of women. I am going to make it seem that your extreme that you're talking about, as far as no exceptions to rape, no exceptions to incest, is going to be rampant. And a woman is going to not only lose her choice of her body, but in the most extreme cases. To me, I think that's going to be a lot at the top of a lot of communications that the Democrats are going to put forward going forward. 
I hope so, because if they do, they're going to lose for sure. Because what, what I will say, is I think there are very few voters who that is their number one issue. And, and I do think that when you look at what's going on in the world, we just talked about inflation. We're seeing education testing scores that are going down, down, down for our kids K to 12. They're not going to allow them to be competitive in the rest of the world. You have Russian aggression in Ukraine. You have Chinese aggression in our own hemisphere, in Cuba and in Brazil. Um, you, you have a border issue that needs to be dealt with and an immigration issue that needs to be brought to a conclusion here so we can fill some of the 8 million empty jobs that we have in this country and be able to get a legal immigration system that works and continues to grow America's strength. One of our advantages over China is we're not nearly the aging population that they are. My point is when all these issues are brought to the fore in a presidential race, I'm not saying abortion is unimportant. But what I'm saying is I think it's a small percentage of people that will make that determine their vote. And my proof of that, Donnie, is that in New Jersey, I ran as a pro-lifer with exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. And I won twice in what is one of the most liberal blue states in America. It's not that I changed their minds on abortion. I didn't. But they thought, one, I was giving them what my authentic point of view was, and two, in New Jersey at that moment, it wasn't the most important issue to them. And so I think that if Democrats do that, I think it may be a mistake. You, you mentioned immigration, and I'm going to now appoint you immigration czar. Tell me what Biden's been doing wrong and what Chris Christie's immigrations are. G- give me the actual policy. Here's the problem. He hasn't done anything. And in the same way, Trump didn't do anything to try to change the immigration policy. Trump's immigration policy was stop people at the border and build a wall. He built, he built, you know, 47 miles of wall in four yeah. years and, and we paid for all of it. Um, and that we haven't got our first peso from the Mexicans. Barack Obama, Donnie, when he had 60 votes in the United States Senate, could have imposed whatever immigration solution he thought was best for the country. He did nothing. And the last president to really give this a shot was George W. Bush. I mean, I think that the, the problem is we haven't had presidential leadership on it. Remember the last time we dealt with immigration in a comprehensive way, Ronald Reagan was the president. Yeah. And what he did was he brought both sides together and he, and he forced compromise on both sides. It wasn't perfect, but it helped the situation get better. And, you know, that's why I think having a Republican governor from a blue state as president may be a pretty good idea. Think about two of the most intractable problems we have in America today, immigration and Social Security. And Ronald Reagan was the last president to fix both. And so, you know, there's something to be said for a Republican governor in a blue state who has to learn how to force compromise, but also stand by certain principles. And that's the kind of approach, Donnie, I would bring to it. Each side's going to have to get something in this argument in order to make them agreeable. Right now, both sides stand with their feet in cement. A president's the one who can break those feet out of cement. If if I if you hired me to help you out, I, I'd say on the one hand, Governor, the, the fact that you're punching, jabbing Trump, obviously you have to do. The other thing I would suggest, and it was interesting, I was I happened to hear a speech from Jamie Dimon, the J.P. Morgan uh, CEO, and he was talking about how good things are 
for our country, not as a political speech. He wasn't supporting Biden, but it was just just ticking over. It was a message of positivity. Hey, you know what? We're not great. We're not perfect. But damn, we're really fucking good in so many measures. Where is the room for a positive message on a Republican platform? Because that's, if you look throughout history, that yes, negative campaigning is crucial and is important, but you also need a little morning in America in there. And that is completely missing from any Republican message out there. You have to give people hope. Right. And, and so, you know, we've been in this race for five weeks. We're going to have a lot to say as we go forward on that. But I did listen to that Jamie Dimon talk. Um, and I think Jamie made a lot of really good points. And so what that should say to people is we're doing that well with a completely dysfunctional government, with a government that gives itself a round of applause when it approves the debt ceiling. That becomes cause for <laughs> really? celebration, right? That we agreed that we should actually um, pay the bills that we've already incurred. Um, I think if we actually got a government where we were forcing things to happen, we worked on our industrial base in this country, created more manufacturing jobs, and, and brought more of those things to the middle class of this country. That if we talked about educational freedom in this country, especially for our urban families, where they should not be stuck in these failure factories anymore, Donnie. You look at these numbers, these NAEP numbers that came out, the national testing, it's disgraceful. And if you're an African-American family or Hispanic-American family in the city of Newark, in the city of Chicago, in the city of Los Angeles, what's your hope for your kid? And why should it be that only guys like you and I if we choose to send our children outside the public school system, have the wherewithal to do it. What would provide hope in the minority community is hope for their kids. And educational freedom is something that I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about. And this is not just like what lesson plans are you being taught, what books are in the library. This is about the fundamental choice for a parent to be the one who decides where his or her child should go to school. So I think there's going to be a lot of positive things to talk about that you can talk about because of the things that Jamie said, that we do have a foundation that anybody else would trade for right now. So let's build on it. It's what I talked about on my announcement. When America has gone big at these crucial moments, we've always come out of it stronger, smarter, richer, and freer. Remember it, 1776, 1861, the Civil War, 1941, World War II, and 81 against the evil empire. We asked the country to sacrifice, to do big things. We always came out of it better, a leader around the world and a, and a country that we were proud to be. That's the kind of president I'm gonna be, Donnie. Do the big things. In order to get there, we gotta raise some money. How's the fundraising going? I know there's a lot of talk in, I, I live in New York, obviously I'm on that priest side and a lot of my friends are on Wall Street that a lot of Wall Street money's been sitting on the sideline. A lot of big corporate money, they've been, they initially were, were gonna go after DeSantis and DeSantis just shit the bed. I, I mean, this did, you couldn't do a stupider thing than this guy did with Disney. Um, but I'm curious, what's your take on, on how's the fundraising going and, and what are your thoughts? Let me just say this, like I said to you earlier, we, we'll probably have some, a very good announcement this week regarding the 40,000 uh, donor threshold. We have, as we sit here today, eight times the number of donors today, 30 days into our campaign, than we had at the same point eight years ago. Wow. And so, so there's a real enthusiasm out there for the message that we're putting out there. Um, will Ron DeSantis have more money than us? Yes. Will Donald Trump have more money than us? Yes. 
but will we have enough money to be heard and to make a difference, you know, in, in, in advertising the race? I'm confident we will. We'll put out our numbers in, in a couple of days. And quite frankly, we did really well for three weeks in the race when the quarter ended, both in terms of our campaign and in terms of the super PAC that is supportive of our effort. Governor Christie, uh, I'm going to let you go. I'm a fan. I didn't start out a fan years ago, as you know. We and I had some scraps on the on the air. Uh, I I think exactly what you're doing is right, and I think uh, just keep taking on the ugly ogre in the room. That's the way to do this thing, and uh, I'm rooting for you, Donnie. I appreciate the time being on. People just go to chrischristie.com if they like what they hear. Donate a dollar. Uh, donate five dollars. Whatever you can afford to do. Um, what matters much more to me is the number of people that we get to buy into our message because that turns into votes. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on. It's always great to see you. Um, and imagine in the same day, I'm back on Morning Joe and on Brands with Donnie Deutsch. <laughs> Big day. Talk, talk about a media cavalcade. You have a good day, my friend. Thank you, bud.